Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. You know, we sing the song, or we used to, you remember it, Trust and Obey. It's a nice song, but it's somewhat misleading. If you interpret it to mean if you trust and obey God, everything's gonna turn out all right. Well, eventually that's true, but it doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes we regret not just wrong decisions, but right decisions. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. After making a sinful decision, it's natural to feel regret. But sometimes we regret making good decisions. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress looks at a moment when Abraham second-guessed his decision to obey God. If you've ever suffered from believer's remorse, you'll want to hear this encouraging lesson. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. In some Christian traditions, people are taught to live within strict boundaries. There's a long list of things you cannot do, and there's another list of things you must do. That's called legalism, and it makes for a miserable life. God doesn't want us to live that way. Instead, He's enlisted us to trust Him, and that means sometimes we step outside the boundaries of convention. That's called faith. In my brand new study called Walking by Faith, we're learning how to trust God. That includes, at times, taking risks. It means that sometimes we venture into unknown territory, trusting God to provide. Maybe you're in the throes of making a large decision. Your knees are knocking a bit because you're afraid of failing. Well, in this radio series and in my brand new book, Walking by Faith, I'm going to show you the biblical precedent for making scary decisions by looking at the life of Abraham. In fact, I've set aside a copy of Walking by Faith just for you. You'll be among the first to receive your copy when you respond today. It's yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. We'll save just a few moments at the end of the message to describe how to get in touch with us. But at this point, let's open our Bibles to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. I titled today's message, Refusing to Second Guess Your Right Decisions. Buyer's Remorse. You know the concept, don't you? If only I had bought a bigger size or a different color. If only I'd waited for a sale. You know, the only thing more painful than second-guessing your decisions with regret is second-guessing those decisions with fear, doing what you think is the right thing and then starting to fear the consequences. A student decides that uh, they're not going to cheat on the exam, but then they begin to worry, what if I failed the course? An employee refuses to follow her boss's edict to cheat, to cut corners, and then she begins to fear, what if I lose my job? As we're going to discover today in our study in the life of Abraham, there's only one remedy to regrets over the right decisions we make, and that remedy is faith. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, as we discover some help in refusing to second guess our right decisions. Now look at this, beginning with verses one and two. And it came about 
in the days of Amphriel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shimabur, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. Don't those verses just warm your heart? <laughs> what if you were reading through the Bible and that was your memory verse for the week? <laughs> but don't lose heart here. There's more to this story. It's setting up for an important story for us. Verses three and four. And all these kings came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea, the dead sea, we call it today. Twelve years they had served Kedolaomer, but the 13th year they rebelled. Now, here's what's going on here. The kings of the Jordan Valley that included the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah they had lived for years under the reign of a coalition of eastern kings led by Kedolaomer. And so they had paid taxes to Kedolaomer every year for 12 years. But after 12 years of paying taxes to this monarch, they kind of like our American colonists decided no taxation without representation. We're not going to pay King Henry anymore. We're not going to pay King Kedolaomer anymore. We're going to stop paying to this coalition of kings. They did that in the 13th year, quit paying their taxes. In the 14th year, Kedolaomer said, we're not going to put up with this rebellion any longer. So Kedolaomer leads a group of kings from the east, and they invade the Jordan Valley, where these rebellious kings were, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens when Kedolaomer invades? Well, some of the people fled immediately to the hills of Masada. Uh, some of them fled there, leaving their possessions behind. Uh, verse 10 tells us there were tar pits in the area. Tar that was used earlier to build the Tower of Babel. Some of the kings fled and got stuck in the tar pits. That was the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they left behind their treasures. And those residents who stayed, including the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were taken captive. Now, who was living in Sodom and Gomorrah when this war broke out? and the residents were taken captive. Guess who was there? Our old friend Lot. It's interesting, the last time we saw Lot in chapter 13, he moved to the edge of Sodom, this city of wickedness. He didn't move into it yet, but he was kind of attracted to it, tantalized by it, so he moved to the edge. When we get to chapter 14, he's right smack dab in the middle of Sodom, and he ends up getting taken captive by Kedolaomer. Now, what happens? Look at verse 13. Then a fugitive, somebody escaped from those who had been taken captive and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre. Now, there's an interesting nuance here in the Hebrew language. It says Abram was living in Canaan by the oaks of Mamre. That word, Hebrew word living means existing, it's the idea of a temporary dwelling place. Remember, Abraham lived in a tent even though he was a wealthy man. He wanted to be free to listen to the voice of God whenever it came, telling him to move. Abraham wasn't looking for an earthly home. He was looking for a heavenly home. That was Abraham's philosophy. I'm not 
really belong in this world. I'm just staying in this world for now. Contrast that to Lot, who thought this world was the final place for him. He drove down those stakes in the city of Sodom. And isn't it interesting that the one who ended up getting uprooted was Lot. He got taken captive. And so when Abraham heard the news from this fugitive that his nephew had been taken captive, what was his reaction? Now, let's do an honest test here. If you had a family member or a friend who had taken advantage of you business-wise, cheated you, say, and you knew they were living in rebellion against God, and you got the news that something bad had happened to that family member who had mistreated you, how would you respond? Don't lie to your pastor. You know exactly. Oh, I'd be so heartbroken. No, you wouldn't. Most people would take some pleasure in hearing that somebody had wronged them, had some harm befall them. But that wasn't Abraham. That wasn't Abraham. Abraham wanted to rescue his nephew, Lot. You see, Abraham understood that true love is not giving people what they deserve. It's giving people what they need. Isn't that how God dwelt with, dealt with us? In Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, God saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Aren't you glad we serve a kind God? A God who doesn't give us what we deserve, justice, separation from God, punishment for our sins, but he gives us what we need, and that is grace. That's exactly what Abraham did with Lot. He dealt with him according to grace. And so he organized a group of 318 men, verse 15 says. 318 men, and they go on a rescue miss mission. They go after the forces of Cato Leomer. They defeat Cato Leomer, who runs for the hills and leads all the stolen loot behind, including the hostages that included Lot. And from this point on, Abraham was already a legend. Now he moves to superhero status. Everybody's talking about Abraham. And because Cato Leomer left behind all this loot, as well as all these captives, a rich man, Abraham became even richer. He had all of this stuff now, all of these people. What would he do? And so we see Abraham facing a new test. And again, it's a test of not how he handles adversity. How does he handle this newfound prosperity? Well, the test comes in the form of two kings that he meets. Now, first of all, he meets a king named Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that was probably ancient Jerusalem, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to Abraham. Now, he was a priest of the Most High God. This is the first time a priest is mentioned in the Bible. And his name was Melchizedek. Now, that name probably rings a bell with some of you. Remember in Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews uses Melchizedek as an example of the superiority of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is about how Christianity is superior to Judaism. It's superior to every aspect of Judaism. Uh, Jesus was superior to the Old Testament priest that came from the tribe of Levi. 
The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, Jesus isn't like a Levitical priest. He's more like a priest Melchizedek in the Old Testament. See, Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. He was both. So is Jesus. Jesus is a priest and he is a king. That word priest comes from the word pontifex, bridge builder, go-between, mediator. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator, one priest, one go-between between God and men. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only priest you need. I'm not your priest. I can't mediate between you and God. You don't need me. You need the only priest, Jesus. He's the one who builds the bridge between you and your heavenly father. He was a priest, Melchizedek, but he was also a king, and so is Jesus. He's the ruler, the creator over all. Now, what does Melchizedek say when he meets Abraham? He blessed him, verse 19, and said, blessed be Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. The word in Hebrew Melchizedek uses for God is El Elyon. It means the creator God, the possessor God, the God who owns everything. God owns everything in this universe because he created everything in this universe. That's what Melchizedek reminded Abraham. Abraham, God owns it all. Look at verse 20. And he goes on to say, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham, God's the one who granted you victory over Ketoleomer. And there's no pushback from Abraham on this. No, Abraham acknowledges that. And he acknowledges it by, look at what it says. He says, and he gave, Abraham gave a tenth of all to Melchizedek. He gave a tithe of all of his, his possessions to Melchizedek. This is the first time tithing is mentioned in the Bible. Now, I know there are people who argue with that. They say, well, that's the Old Testament. That's the law. Christians aren't under law. We give under grace, which for most people means give as little as possible. Uh, that's what grace giving is for many people. Give as little as possible without feeling guilty over it. No, no. Tithing came before the law. Remember, Abraham lived five, 400 years before Moses. 400 years before the old covenant was given to Moses, Abraham tithed. And he did so not out of coercion, he did it out of gratitude for what God had done for him. He just naturally wanted to give a tenth of what he had of his possessions to Melchizedek. Now, what does that say to us today? It says if you're a Christian and you really want to know what does God want me to give? And many Christians have that question. I'm a new believer. How much am I supposed to give? Well, I believe the tithe is a starting place. Not necessarily the ending place, but it's the starting place if you really want to know because it happened long before the law ever came into effect. He gave a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek. Now, Having that encounter with the priest, being reminded that God's the one who gave him victory, prepared him for the second king he met, Berah, the king of Sodom. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now, you know what I stumbled over all week in studying this passage? How did the king of Sodom get out of the tar pit? 
Last time we saw him, he had fled and was caught up in the tar pit, it says in chapter 14. How did he get out of the tar pit? Well, maybe Abraham rescued him. But when he gets out of the tar pit, he says, Abram, you've got all of this new treasure that belonged to my people, and you've got all of my people, the residents of Sodom. So I want to make a deal with you. And here's the deal. You keep the money, I'll take the captives back, and it's a win-win for both of us. And what does Abram say to that? No deal. No deal. Why? Verses 22 and 23, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. He said, if I get into this deal with you, I might be richer for it, but God's glory will be diminished. If I take this money from you and give you the captives back, people will say what a shrewd negotiator you were instead of how great God is. So this is what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna take any of your possessions. If my men want it, the 318, they're entitled to it. But I'm not gonna take anything from you that would diminish the glory of God. I want people to know God is the one who has given the victory. That explains Abraham's whole life. His whole focus was the glory of God, making God look bigger and better to an unbelieving world. That's why Abraham is the only person whom God called my friend. My friend Abraham, he got it. He understood the whole reason we're here on this earth for such a brief period of time is to glorify God, to point people to God. And so he refused the riches that the king of Sodom, uh, Bera, offered to him. Now, that would be a great place to end the story. Abraham the Great, once again, glorifying God. But the story doesn't end there. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, after what things? After the raid, the victorious raid on Cater Leomer, after paying the tithes to Melchizedek, after refusing the gifts of the king of Sodom, it was after these things that a bad case of believer's remorse set in. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. Why did he say do not fear? Because apparently Abraham was fearing. God looked down on his servant and saw him having these restless nights in which he tossed and turned. He said, Abram, don't be afraid. What was Abraham afraid of? He was having believer's remorse for making the right decision. The first phrase describes what he was fearing. What if? What if? He began to wonder, what if? Cater Learmer isn't defeated. He's just simply regrouping and he's going to come and attack me again. What if, what if, what if? Do you know nothing will paralyze you with fear any more than that phrase, what if? God says to Abraham, don't fear. I am your shield. God says he's our hedge. He has built a hedge around every believer. You know, Satan is a liar, but that doesn't mean everything he says is a lie. Sometimes even Satan gets it right. Remember what he said about Job in Job 1.10? He said to God, no wonder Job worships you. 
Haven't you placed a hedge around him and his household and everything that is his? You're the protector of Job. No wonder he worships you, Satan says. And it was true, God had put a hedge around Job and his family, but then God lowered the hedge. He gave Satan temporary permission to go after Job, but it was all still part of God's plan. Listen to me, that's the reason we don't have to fear. Proverbs 12, 21 says, no harm befalls the righteous. Now that's a lousy translation of the Hebrew because we know that's not true. No harm befalls the righteous. Lots of harm befalls righteous people. Terrible things happen to righteous people. But that's not what the Hebrew text says. It literally says nothing without purpose happens to the godly. That is, there is nothing that comes into your life that has not been allowed by a good, loving, perfect God. And if it's come through the will of God, it comes for your good and for the glory of God. Believers, don't fear. God is our shield. And then he goes on to say, and I am your reward, Abraham. Why did he say that? I think Abraham not only had a case of the what ifs, but he was also suffering from the if only regrets. Did I really want to give up all that money? (laughs) I could have done some good things with that money. If only I'd kept it, I could trade in my tent for a mansion in Highland Park. What does God say? Abraham, I'm not only your shield, I am your reward. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, those who come to God must believe two things, that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently follow him. There is a reward for obeying God. It doesn't always come immediately but it always comes ultimately. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy said, the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. When you think about God, what comes into your mind? Only those who think of God as their shield, their reward, can avoid the regret and fears that come from making the right decisions. Hebrews 11 verse 6 is a powerful verse to memorize. Keep this one in your arsenal because it will empower you to make courageous, life-giving choices. Hebrews 11:6 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. Isn't that a beautiful verse? There's so much more I want to share with you on this topic. We're in the middle of a brand new teaching series called Walking by Faith. It's never been heard on Pathway to Victory until now. Plus, in conjunction with my new teaching series, I also wrote a book for you that's also titled Walking by Faith. I truly believe this book will reignite your passion for walking with God. It'll show you how to engage with your Savior in ways you've likely never experienced before. You see, walking with God includes trusting Him to guide your steps, even when you're uncertain where God will lead you. Ask for your copy right now by giving us a call or writing a letter. Or it might be quicker and more efficient if you simply go online to ptv.org. Again, my book is called Walking by Faith, 
and it's yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Remember, today's sermon was cut down for more than 40 minutes in order to fit it into our half-hour broadcast requirements. I really want you to hear the entire presentation. So, David, be sure to explain how our friends can receive the unedited CDs and DVDs of this series, Walking by Faith. Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. To receive a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Robert Jeffress called Walking by Faith, simply contact the Ministry of Pathway to Victory with a generous gift. Call us toll-free at 866-999-2965 or visit our website at ptv.org. And when you give $75 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the Walking by Faith teaching series, along with a study guide. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You could write to us if you'd like, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. But what about people who lived before Jesus' time on earth? Hear a message called, The Night Abraham Was Saved. That's Tuesday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Imagine waking up to the sight of Alaska's majestic coastline or spotting wildlife from the deck of a luxurious cruise ship. Experience these unforgettable moments on the Pathway to Victory Cruise to Alaska with Dr. Robert Jeffress. Relax with us in Alaska and I guarantee you'll come home spiritually and physically refreshed. To book your spot on the 2024 Pathway to Victory Cruise to Alaska, go to ptv.org.